Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to the Fire in the Belly show. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we're joined by the Amanda Webster. Good morning for you. Good afternoon for Good me. Good morning. Yes, yeah. it's morning here. Still <laughs> like 8.41 in the morning. Lovely, lovely. Oh, it's always a great start to the day. So tell us, Amanda, who are you? What are you doing? Where are you from? I am here in Phoenix, Arizona in the U.S. I am a certified mind-body wellness coach with a specialty in holistic nutrition, a certified fitness and uh, yoga instructor, as well as a suicide survivor and rape survivor. Wow, that's that's quite something. You've got a little bit of a resume, right? <laughs> well, so talk to us about the mind-body, you know, what do you call it, mind-body and spirit, is it? Mind-body wellness coach. You were so quick, I, I hardly even kept it. So unpack that a, that a bit first. What does that mean? Yeah, it's bridging the gap between mental and physical health because so often we think about all of these things differently. We th- we forget that our brain is part of our body and that what we do in our day-to-day lives, be it our nutrition, our fitness regimes, whatever, um, that affects our mental health. So the whole point of a mind-body wellness coach is bridging that gap so that um, people can be more educated about the connection and about how they can optimize both their mental and their physical health because really mental health is physical health that's so true actually i mean is that and and do they all need to be in alignment do you think i mean do you does it have to oh be- yeah yeah i think that you know if you a lot of people will focus just on mindset but if you have a great mindset and you're treating your body like crap you're still going to eventually find yourself in some form of dis-ease because that's what it is. It's dis-ease. That's how it manifests in your body. But if on the other hand, you are eating pure organic vegan blessed with holy water food and working out an hour a day, but you have a crappy mindset, uh, you have a crappy lifestyle, you have a crappy way of, of thinking, then again, you're still going to find yourself in that, uh, in that area of disease because they're 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 all tied together you know they're all intertwined and if one is out of balance it's going to affect the others well that makes a lot of sense so where, where are you at in your journey then what what stage are you at well i feel like i like that you say journey because i feel like it's ongoing but i feel happy like i feel for the first time in my life i'm actually at a place where i can say i'm genuinely fulfilled with my life and two years ago somebody had told me that i'd feel like that probably would have laughed in their face because two years ago um, I was on the ledge of a Canadian hotel room ready to jump in in my life because I had gone through over a decade and a half of clinical depression. Uh, I'd gone through addiction, self-harm, pretty much the gamut of things that someone with a mental health uh, disorder goes through. And I just couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't take the pain anymore. I was constantly at rock bottom there was no real happy. I mean, there were moments where it was like, Oh, cool. I got to meet my childhood hero. Fantastic. And then 10 minutes later, I was like, I was having suicidal ideation again. So there was no sustainable uh, fulfillment or happiness. And now I feel like I found, as I call it, my five puzzle pieces of happiness. I found the puzzle pieces that needed to be in place for me to be at the top of my happiness spectrum, to be, you know, my optimal mental and physical health. And I feel like I'm there right now. And I feel like, of course, there's always those little things you can shift or little things you can improve. But 
if, if right now I stayed where I am, I could still live a happy and fulfilling life. What's what stopped you from jumping? Well, it's interesting because part of the reason I was there was it was the summer of 2017. Like I said, I'd had like a decade and a half of, of depression, clinical depression. I'd been diagnosed borderline personality disorder. And I, in this, in this two week span in the summer of 2017 was wrongfully accused in two major legal cases. I was in a car accident. I had just gotten out of a a fairly serious relationship. Well, really serious relationship a few months prior to that. I was having a huge falling out with my very close friend. And through all of this, I'm listening to a lot of Lincoln Park because that was my only like healthy coping mechanism since I was 16 years old. I'm now 35. That was my only real healthy coping mechanism. And tragically, uh, the lead singer lost his life to suicide within this two week period. And that was kind of my catalyst that that just pushed me down to rock bottom because, you know, I I saw Chester, um, the lead singer, I saw him as a source of strength to me. And if he you know, being someone who had everything, lost his battle. How in the hell was I supposed to fight mine? Well, when I was on the ledge, I was staring down. I was thinking, God, I hope this doesn't hurt because I don't want to hurt anymore. And I was thinking, you know, I'm doing this for my son because he doesn't deserve someone like me as his mom. And in that exact moment outside my hotel room door in a foreign country, in a foreign, not English speaking country, mind you, I, um, I heard Breaking the Habit by Linkin Park come on in that exact moment. And I just kind of freaked out because, you know, I, like I said, that had been my sign, my coping mechanism, my strength, my power uh, through all of this. And I just realized I couldn't jump. I was like, holy shit. And I kind of, I kind of panicked because at first I thought this is that, that uh, tape playing through your mind that they talk about right before you die. This is just my life playing before me. And of course my life has Linkin Park as a, as a um, theme song, as a soundtrack, makes total sense, right? And I I initially stepped down just to go look because I was in shock. I I just absolutely could not believe that something like that had happened, that that was coming on, that I was getting my my sign, quote unquote, uh, such a real tangible in-your-face sign. I I stepped down and I, I walked to the door and I poked my head out and there were two guys with a cleaning cart which was weird for two reasons. One, I'd been there for three days and there had been nobody. Like, I mean, nobody there the entire three days I'd been there. Absolutely nobody. Um, I hadn't seen a cleaning crew. When you got there, you actually had to page somebody to let you in because there wasn't a concierge that stayed there all the time. And number two, like I was right in the middle of a hallway. I wasn't at the beginning where a cleaning crew would start their, their cleaning process. Cause they usually either start right by the elevator or right at the end of the hall. And I was not in either of those places. So it's just very strange a that this cleaning crew was there at this time and B that they stopped literally right in front of my room. So we, we had this very brief French interaction. I was in Quebec. We had this very brief uh, French interaction and I just went back in my hotel room and fell apart. Just absolutely lost it. How do you feel after all that? At the time, I was really confused. At the time, I, I was scared because I knew I couldn't jump. I, I, I was, I'd been so sure, you know, I got to that point. I got over my fear of death. I was so sure standing on this ledge, this is what I have to do. And when I came down, I was just so confused. 
because I said, what the hell am I supposed to do now? I don't know what to do. I, I felt like I tried everything. I felt like I, I, I went to the therapy, the therapist, I'd taken the medication and I'd done the yoga. I mean, then I'd done the cocaine then I'd done the self-harm, like anything I could possibly do to try to come out of that depression, good or bad, I'd done um, everything I could think of. And I was terrified. I, I fell apart because I felt like I never gave myself that opportunity. I felt like I never really just gave myself the chance to process through my feelings because that's what we're indoctrinated to do, right? We're indoctrinated, we're conditioned that if we have uncomfortable feelings, we, we don't we don't really we don't really talk about that. We don't really um, feel them. We try to change them. So if something tragic happens or something traumatic happens, we try to change them. And in this case, it was even worse because I'm grieving somebody I didn't even know. Like I'm grieving the death of somebody I didn't, I'd never even met in my life, um, but that I had this, this what's it's actually called a parasocial relationship, the relationship we have with uh, celebrities, quote unquote, or people that inspire us like that, uh, be it an athlete or an actor or a singer or an author or whatever. Um, so I, I was like grieving this and being told that I was crazy for it, even by people that I was close to. I never really got over, like I'd never really processed my parents' death because my mom died uh, when I was 22. My dad had died when I was 20. And I never really took the time to really genuinely, truly grieve that. I just kept trying to tell myself, you need to get yourself together. You need to get yourself together. You need to find a way to, to make the pain go away because the pain was just too much. I was sexually assaulted. As I said, I'm, I'm a rape survivor. I was sexually assaulted when I was 16. I'd never really dealt with that either. Uh, so all of these traumas had stacked instead of me having a traumatic experience, working my way through it, getting to a point where I, I had healed. I had just had all of this trauma stacked in my life. And I think that really just letting it all go, letting it all out, doing whatever I needed to, it be it scream, I'm sorry to the neighbors in that hotel room, be it scream or cry or whatever journal. I wrote a lot. I, I journaled a lot um, that night. But whatever it was, I just, I needed to let it out without judgment, without anything. I just needed to let it out. But in the, I, I just remember being so scared in the days coming. I mean, I felt empowered because I was like, okay, I'm meant to be here for some reason. I don't know why, but I'm meant to be here for some reason. So there was a part of me that felt very empowered. Like, hey, I'm important. I'm meant to be here. Um, then there's a part of me that started feeling guilt because why wasn't Chester like, why didn't something save him? Why didn't the right song play there to save him? Why didn't somebody come in to save him, you know? And I, I started feeling this almost survivor's guilt to all the people that had lost their lives to suicide that didn't get that sign, you know? And then I started being really hard on myself. Like, why the hell did I deserve to be here? What makes me so special? I, I don't have anything special to, to offer, to do. And that was really hard uh, to go through. But in the long run, like it started to turn into kind of this, this empowerment feeling uh, over the following days. And I went back to my mental health professional and I said, look, this is what happened, but I'm really tired of just being complacent. Nobody grows up wanting to live complacently ever after. Like that's not the end goal here. But I felt like happiness or fulfillment was never really the clinical goal. Cause when you go into a therapy, they always have you set up these clinical goals, you know, and they'll walk you through what they want to accomplish and supposedly what you want to accomplish, but really it's them kind of goading you and what, what they want you to accomplish. Um, and it, it really boils down to not self-harming, not having these addictions, 
And that's about it. <laughs> like that's, that's where it was. It was, are you taking medication? Are you free from, from these addictions, including like self-harm and stuff? And I told her, you know, I'm tired of just being complacent. I want to be happy. Like I, I, I will do whatever it takes. I will, I will go through whatever prog- program you set up for me. I will make whatever changes you, you tell me to make, but I want to be happy. Like I, I'd actually ironically been, um, this was October of, of 2018. And I had actually been in recovery from self-harming cocaine since June of 2018. So it'd been several months already, but I still found myself on that ledge because the underlying issues that triggered the self-harm and the drugs, the addiction hadn't been dealt with. Uh, so I told her, you know, look, I've been in recovery for several months. And so we've met that goal. Like we've been, we've been meeting that goal. I want to take the next step. Like I want to genuinely move toward a fulfilling, happy life. And that broad looked me in the eyes and said, that's not possible for someone like you. That's not possible for someone with your diagnosis, with your disorder. You will never live a, a happy life. You, you can be functional, like you could be functional to a certain degree, but w- with your disorder, you're just never going to live a quote unquote normal life. And I think I, I honestly, in retrospect, it's what I needed to hear. Now, my fear is how many people had she told that, that were fresh off that ledge that ended up jumping, you know, later, because now they're being told you're never going to be happy. What kind of crap disempowering perspective is that to tell someone you're never going to be happy. Imagine had I heard that in my, in my dark times in my, in my darker days, imagine where that would have ended up. But I did have that, that bit of empowerment, you know, from, from coming down and from the song and everything. And I just remember going to my car and I turned on song prove you wrong by Mike Shinoda, uh, who was the surviving singer of Lincoln park. And I just sat in my car fuming angry at this woman, just so, so, so angry um, because she told me I couldn't. But then, you know, listening to the song, it echoed my dad because my dad always told me, you pull up your bootstraps and you prove them wrong. Like that was something my dad had always instilled in me. And it worked pretty well for me, actually, because people are always like, oh, no, you'll, you'll never shoot for Playboy. Guess what I did? Oh, you're, no, you're never going to be able to travel to all these different places as a single mom. Guess what I did? Oh, you're never going to be able to find a, a, a agent for your book. Guess what I freaking did? <laughs> so I, I, I very much had this, this proven wrong mindset uh, instilled in me from my childhood. But I think the, the interesting part was, is it wasn't just I wanted to prove her wrong for me. I mean, I did, obviously, because I was like, this is life or death at this point. Like, if I don't prove her wrong, I'm going to die. And I did tell myself uh, shortly thereafter, I made a pact with myself. And I said, I'm going to give this everything I can for a year. Everything, like everything I can possibly think to do to heal myself. And if that doesn't work, I give myself permission to jump because I just, I couldn't keep living like that. I just absolutely couldn't keep living uh, with that kind of pain. I mean, do you know how how horrible it is to feel your young child hug you and you just feel nothing at all because there's no connection there? You know, in, intrinsically, you know, you'd love your kid. I know, you know, you die for your kid. I, I always knew that. I mean, I, I didn't use around my son. He never saw my, my self-harm uh, scars or anything. He never saw any of that. I still loved my kid, but I didn't feel what they told me and feel. I didn't feel it inside. And 
I knew that I had to, to prove her wrong for myself, for my son, for all the other people out there that she told the same thing to or that other people were saying the same thing to. They're saying, oh, well, you know, if you're not on medication, then you're never going to be functional or, oh, you're never actually going to be happy because of this disorder that you have. I had to prove her wrong for everybody, for, for all people like me. Do you believe you have a disorder? You know, I think I, I, I definitely am always going to be more emotional than the quote unquote average. So I, I do definitely think that, that I'm different. I do accept that. For me, I thought at first that it would be useful to have a diagnosis because then, okay, well, I have kind of some kind of structure I can work with. And I do think that works for a lot of people. But for me, it was always something different. Like every professional I went to would diagnose me with something different, just depending on what they picked up on or what they had studied or what their textbooks showed them. So it went from bipolar to manic depressive to generalized anxiety, not otherwise classified. So the one tried to say I was OCD um, with, uh, with a generalized anxiety disorder. Then of course, just general clinical depression and then uh, borderline personality was, was my most recent. And, you know, I, I did see some, some of those traits in there. I definitely saw some borderline uh, traits in there. I, I did have issues with, with the black and white um, level of thinking. And I still, I still do struggle with that sometimes. Like when someone makes me angry, it's hard for me to understand that they're not a bad person, that they're not all good or all bad, that there's, there's definitely um, levels to people. You know, remember on Shrek, people are ogres are like onions, you know, layers, that whole conversation. So I, I do, I do own that I might have have had um, something much much deeper, like a clinical imbalance going on. But I also think that I have influenced that in a very positive way with the changes that I've made. So I was officially decertified as having a serious mental illness, which was like the happiest moment of my life to look that that woman in the face and hear her have to say, "You're right. You you don't you don't." you know, meet the qualifications anymore. So while I think I'll always be more emotional than most people, and while I always think that I'll have, um, I'll experience symptoms of anxiety and stuff, let's be honest, who the hell doesn't? <laughs> like we live in an extremely high paced uh, society. And I think most people at some point are going to experience that, but I, I know how to work through it. It doesn't impede my day-to-day -day life. So in short, no, I don't really think that I have a disorder at this point. I don't think that I meet the criteria for these disorders. Unfortunately, um, the, the powers that be agreed with me and decertified me. And that took me nearly a year of fighting because I, I went back to her a um, little less than a year after this appointment of doom, where she told me that I'd never be happy. Great mental health professional, right? Great, great advice for your mental health. But I went to her about a, a little under a year later and said, look, I don't have any of the, the real um, red flags of having a serious mental illness. And a serious mental illness means that whatever disorder you have, be it uh, BPD, clinical depression, schizophrenia, whatever, whatever mental health disorder you have um, impedes you from living a functional life. So if you can't have a job because of your mental illness or if it impedes your ability to parent or if it, it causes um, insomnia or whatever, like where, where it's really impeding your life on a day-to-day -day basis. 
And she said, well, people don't really get decertified. That's not a thing. Once you have it, it's lifelong. You'll never, you'll never be decertified. That's not possible. Again, super great, you know, empowering advice from, from this mental health professional. But I took it over her head and, and said um, to her superiors, I said, look, I want to be reevaluated. I want, I want a fair chance. You know, I'm not saying that I am or I'm not, but I want a fair chance to be reevaluated. And it took me just under a year of fighting up the chain of command and back and forth and call this person that tells you to call the first person you called. It was, it was a real train wreck. Um, but eventually I did manage to get, I had to go through several appointments. One was with her and then um, several other mental health professionals. And in the beginning, uh, just after, so it was the month after the, the hotel ledge incident, the uh, near suicide attempt, I was, uh, they did a DAS evaluation on me, which means depression, anxiety, stress scales. And when they did the evaluation, my depression was at a 20 and my anxiety was at a 16. So for reference, the highest your depression can be is 21. And that means you're literally institutionalized. <laughs> like you should not be with the general public. Mine was at a 20. So mine was one number below that. Um, when they reevaluated me, when I finally fought for my reevaluation, I finally convinced them to reevaluate me. My depression was at a three and my anxiety was at a two. So it's, it's a very tangible way to see how much I improved. And it's not perfect. That's the important thing to see. It's not like I was zero and zero because I'm still human and I still have human experiences and human struggles. And like I said, I, I do believe I'll always kind of have a more, um, I'll be more susceptible to anxiety and whatnot. But for me, that was just, that was such a happy moment to, to hear that lady say, I don't know how you were ever SMI. <laughs> like the, this was, this was a different psychiatrist. So she had, she didn't know me. She'd never met me. She was just doing, you know, the, the evaluation and going based on, you know, my, my charts and stuff. But she said, I have absolutely no idea how you were ever considered SMI, but whatever you're doing, keep doing it. <laughs> Uh, and I went back to, I had to go back to the mental health professional because she had to be the one that, that did my final, um, my final evaluation, my final appointment and everything. And just ooh, the satisfaction of her looking me in the eyes and telling me she was wrong was one of the top three best moments of my life. It was so great. Like she had to admit she was wrong. And I, I just felt so powerful. Like I felt like this, this Greek hero that had overcome all of these adversities. I felt like Hercules, you know, after, after all of his trials that he finally, you know, got to, got to stand proud and stand tall. And that was the most incredible experience. That was most, that was the best appointment I've ever had with a, with a mental health professional was just being able to say, I, I proved you wrong and her having to admit you're right. I mean, is it, it almost feels like, you know, it was her assessment on your life versus your assessment on your life. That's like right. the, the competition. Yeah, I, f I feel like it wasn't even her assessment. It was her textbooks assessment. You know, it's, well, this is what the textbook says. And there was no room for my experiences. And I actually felt that a lot um, through my time in, in different, uh, with different mental health professionals. I felt like there was, there was frequently that, they, that box they wanted to put you in. They always wanted to make sure you were in a box and make sure that you fit in that box. And sometimes it felt like they were actually trying to adjust your experience to fit in that box. It's like, well, is that really how you experienced? Is that really how you felt? You know? And I almost, I almost sometimes felt 
gaslit. Like they were gaslighting me into, into um, questioning my own experiences and my own, my own, um, my own moments, my own thoughts, my own feelings. And it, that was kind of scary because that's, that's one of the red flags of an abusive relationship. One of the major uh, red flags of an abusive relationship, uh, especially with uh, someone that has NPD or narcissist personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder. And yeah, it was, it was really frustrating because I felt like my story never got the chance to be heard. And I'll say that that, that's kind of a frequent thing with a lot of, of um, different organizations, a lot of different fields. I remember I was a volunteer at Planned Parenthood um, in my 20s. And these women would come in and they'd have abortion procedures done, you know, and afterward they'd struggle emotionally. Some of them would struggle emotionally. And when they would try to say something, the the pro-choice crowd or Planned Parenthood would say, oh, well, you must have had pre-existing depression. Normal people just don't feel like that. And that was a very real narrative that they were that they were saying to these people is, well, normal people just don't feel like that. So you must have had an underlying condition. It's, it's not possible that this abortion, you know, some kind of, of emotions. And I feel like because of things like that, I, I use that example because it's such an obvious, uh, it's such an obvious area where people have very heightened emotions and they try to you know, make these people's experiences fit their narrative to fit their agenda. You know, in this case, the pro-choice people don't want women saying that they that they struggle emotionally, you know, after this procedure, because then, you know, less people are going to have this procedure. And on a marketing standpoint, it makes sense. On a marketing standpoint with mental health professionals, they don't want me to be happy because they lose money. If I'm happy, they lose money, they lose clients. So that's not a very smart business model, you know, to, to heal your clients. It's a smarter business model to say, well, you're, you're going to have to be on this medication for life, but I'm going to help you make your life more survivable. Like that doesn't sound very, very good either. Like, yeah, my life is so survivable today that I don't wake up in the morning and, and want to want to just be able to say, ah, I'm going to survive today. <laughs> like, I mean, there are definitely are days where you're like, okay, I got to survive this. But for the most part, that's just not the narrative that I want to have in my life. And I feel like, yeah, in, in many, many, many different ways, people try to project their own story, their own experience, their own education, their own, that on you, instead of listening to what you want, to your goals, to your experiences, to your story, because I will say we're all unique. Like we all do have very unique experiences. And I know you know, just with myself, let alone all the clients I've, I've coached and stuff that have had very similar experiences to this. Uh, we, we, we don't fit a textbook. I mean, those studies do exist for a reason, you know, and I'm, I'm not undermining those. I do think there's, there's definitely a place and time for, for these things. And they help many, many people in, in different ways. But I kind of implore you to think, have you ever met someone who's on antidepressants or antipsychotics or whatever, that's actually happy? because I have not. I've never known a single person. I've known a lot of people on antidepressants because I, I do tend to, um, to attract pe like people. And I, I, I did struggle, you know, with that. And nowadays, seeing as how I come out, came out the other side, a lot of people, you know, kind of 
swarm to me and say, how the hell did you do that? Like, how did you get out of this? Help me get out of this. Help me get out of this dark place. Uh, I, I see that a lot of those people that just kind of fall between the cracks, so to say, because they don't fit in the narrative of the mental health uh, realm. And so they kind of fall between the cracks. And there are people that the medication doesn't help. And the thing that frustrated me the most, I think, looking back, is that I was diagnosed borderline um, in my 20s. And they still kept trying to shove the narrative of medication. Like they still kept trying to really push. If you don't take medication, you're not gonna be happy. If you don't take medication, you're not gonna be happy. You cannot be not even happy, functional. You can't be functional without medication. Well, the interesting thing about that is medication does not help borderline personality disorder. It can help some of the symptoms that are triggered by borderline personality disorder, like the anxiety or the, the symptoms of depression, but it does not in any way uh, help treat the, the, the actual disorder of, of borderline. Uh, borderline. So when, when I looked back and I started thinking about that, that really frustrated me. Like that really angered me that there was nothing more than here, take a pill that's not even going to work by your own standards, by your own community standards. This pill, but you're still going to try and tell me that that's the quote unquote only way. Okay. <laughs> and if the depression and anxiety is a symptom of this disorder, if it's a symptom of, you know, other things, which I kind of proved it was, it was a symptom of my lifestyle really is what it was. It was a symptom of the way I was something that people don't want to admit that is something that people don't want to accept I remember when I got out of that appointment the first appointment where she told me that I'd never be happy and I didn't know what to do I was completely freaked out and now 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 even more so than when I was on the hotel ledge like now I'm sitting there going oh my god oh my god now I have nothing like now I, I tried to go to this professional that I thought was going to help me and now I don't even have that so now what so I messaged um, Diamond Dallas Page, who is a former, I think, three or four time uh, world heavyweight champion. Uh, he's, he was really big in the, in the wrestling world. And he was a hero of mine in my childhood. Uh, so the fact that I got to connect with him through his DDPY program, I became a certified um, DDPY instructor. He has his own yoga program. I became a certified instructor. And I, I message him every now and then. And you know, get advice or, or talk about the program or about yoga or about fitness or nutrition or whatever. But I messaged him and I didn't tell him the extent of it, but I just said, I'm in a really kind of difficult place emotionally. And I don't know what to do. Like, I'm really struggling with my mental health right now. I don't know what to do. And he said, you know, you to undo it. And I was almost more angry at him than I was a therapist because you know, I, I, all, all I could think was, you don't understand. You don't understand depression. You don't understand mental health. Like, clearly, you've never struggled. You've never had to, to live through that. You've never had to deal with clinical depression, which is BS. And I later done an interview with him um, about mental health for my YouTube channel. And he has been through that. And he has struggled with clinical, clinical depression and um, different issues throughout his life and throughout his career. But the most special thing about that was, is the longer I sat there, the longer I realized that that would have been my dad's advice. That would have been exactly what my dad would have told me is, you know, you need to take your power back. You need to, to, can you fix it? Quote unquote, are you really broken? I wasn't really broken. I just was having symptoms of, of anxiety and depression. I needed to address those, you know? 
And I laid there and tossed and turned and grumbled and, and complained and, you know, felt sorry for myself and had this little pity party in my bed. I actually threw my phone against the wall and shattered it. Uh, so there's that because I knew that I couldn't cuss out Diamond Dallas Page. Uh, I couldn't go off on this rampage, A, because I valued our, our, um, our interaction, our friendship, our relationship, too, because, well, <laughs> he would kick my ass. There's no way that I could have taken him. But I just remember just throwing my phone at the wall and it like shattered. And I, I was just laying there in bed, grumbling and, and just fuming. Like I, I just felt like this capsule of acid had burst inside of me and all resentment and anger at the entire freaking world at that point. But the longer I laid there, the more I was kind of like, okay, well, Maybe, maybe there are some things I could do. Maybe, maybe there's a couple things I could do to, to kind of, you know, move it in the right direction. We'll see. And this is where I ended up making the pact with myself with the, the one year. But the more I really sat with myself, the more I was like, okay, maybe, maybe he's a little, right? Maybe, there, maybe he's, there's, there's some truth behind this. Um, and that, that was kind of my first real step toward taking my power back. And I will say in the beginning, uh, when, when I always looked at myself as a victim of depression, a victim of rape, a victim, like I had this very, very, very victim mentality. I was a victim of these emotionally abusive relationships. And when I shifted that mindset to being a survivor of rape, like I survived these things. I survived this assault. I survived these relationships. And in the long run, kind of came out better because of them. Maybe not right away, but when I started taking my power back, I came out better because of them. And I could use my experiences to help other people, you know, to, to really help empower other people. And for the longest time I looked for, I never felt like I'd really found my raison d'être, right? my reason to be. Um, I saw it. I mean, I knew I wanted to help people. That was very important to me. And I did a lot of charity work, um, even at the time that I was using <laughs> I was off like, let's save the dog. Let's, you know, go do the Days for Girls charity. Because um, I'm, I'm a chapter leader of Days for Girls. We sell reusable feminine hygiene kits for girls in impoverished areas. And I, I, I felt like, okay, well, I'm making this little difference. But I just didn't feel like that was my life purpose. Like, sure, it was great that I could help the homeless guy or help save the dog or whatever. But I didn't feel like that was my entire life purpose. But once I, I sat down, you know, after all this, I went... Okay, when people started asking me more and more, how did you do this? Like, I'm at that rock bottom and, you know, changed my mind. And then I'd start bawling because I'd realize I was somebody's chester. Like, I got to be that to somebody. I talked somebody off the ledge. Um, and I realized maybe that's what I was meant to be all along. Maybe I was meant to be someone's chester. Wow. What... What would you have done for yourself? I mean, you've talked about, you know, the different health professionals. I mean, what could you have done for you? Um, I think it's really the same thing that I ended up doing. I wish if I could go back and tell myself, tell my say teenager, junior high self, one thing it would be, don't give your power to all these other people. Cause that's what I always did. And it wasn't even always in a bad way. It wasn't okay. You know, I, I, I considered myself a victim of rape. So I Gave my, my parents passed away, I had no idea how to cope because I had defined myself as my parents' daughter. So I had no idea who I was or how to cope. And I'd given 
you know, part of my identity to that. And I'm not saying that I, I wasn't my parents' daughter, I very much was, but th- like that had become my identity. I didn't have my own individual identity. And I, I really would have implored myself to stay connected to the things that you could do, stay connected to the things that you can have influence over. And in my case, there's lots of them. There's the mindset, there's um, the tapes that get stuck in your head. I know that, God, I had a lot of them (laughs) to work through. Um, There's the nutrition aspect where if you're eating crap foods and causing inflammation in your gut, then that's actually going to send signals from your vagus nerve, which runs from the base of the brain down into your, uh, down into your gut that sends signals up to the brain saying something's wrong. And that will come out as symptoms of anxiety and depression and making sure um, on the, on the basis of nutrition, making sure that you're getting all of your nutrients that are necessary for optimal mental health, like the omegas and um, the magnesium. I mean, there's so many of them, the iron, if you're deficient, and come out as symptoms of anxiety and depression. I wish I would have known that growing up because I don't think I ever ate a vegetable. I don't remember ever eating a vegetable. I remember eating a lot of Lunchables. I remember eating a lot of pork chops before I went vegetarian. Uh, we, I, I grew up in steak and potato country in Missouri. So it was very much like here's a cheeseburger and here's a steak and here's a pork chop. And here's, you know, it was, it was carbs and meat. And that's pretty much all I ever ate. And looking back, it's like, well, no freaking wonder I had all these symptoms of, of anxiety and depression. I, I, I had had um, several traumatic experiences happen to me even when I was young that I never uh, dealt with. I had a babysitter. Uh, the only babysitter I ever had locked me in a closet with other kids. And I just, I never dealt with that. So my parents were, were very loving. And the minute they found out, they went back crap crazy. And I never heard of that woman ever again. And I always kind of wondered, did my dad just go kind of PTSD. I, I, I had PTSD because he was, he was a Vietnam veteran. I could just be, see him being like, I had PTSD and I panicked and I thought she was a Charlie. And, and like, that's why I never actually told my dad about my sexual assault. Cause I know he would have killed the guy. Literally. I know a lot of people say that I'm not even exaggerating. My dad would have murdered him. Uh, so there, there was all these, these traumas that I didn't deal with. And then on top of that, I, I didn't have any of the things I needed to be able to function um, optimally mentally or physically. Uh, so it, it actually made perfect sense. So if I could go back and change one thing or go back and, and teach myself one thing, it would be how to live so that I could have that optimal mental and physical health. So I could combat those symptoms that I was having that were really a symptom of a really crappy lifestyle and a really crappy mindset. Um, I was, I was, it was always the outcast kid. I, I was never particularly accepted till, you know, I got out of high school and shot Playboy NFHM. And then of course, every guy that I'd never talked to in high school is like, Hey, you remember me? I'm like, I, I literally think you bumped into me in the hall one time in eighth grade. Like that's the interaction we had. So, uh, I, I kind of remember you being the douchebag in, in, in my English class or something, but that's about it. Uh, but it, it was really interesting to watch that, but I was really, um, I was really ostracized by my peers. So that kind of started those tapes in my head. If I'm not good enough, I'm not enough. I, I deserve this. Uh, I, I deserve to not, um, to not be accepted for some reason. Something's wrong with me. And I had let these other people's tapes um, from all the bullying and stuff in school get stuck in my head. And then even well-meaning tapes. Again, we, we always look at this and so, like it's, it's all the fault of the negative people in our lives, like the bullies or my, my, my rapist or whatever. We kind of always blame these people, but it was even like my mom 
when I was a teenager had told me that I looked dead without makeup. And my mom was a wonderful, loving, bless her soul. Like she was such a great mom, like very supportive, always there for me, always listened, always wanted to help me reach my dreams. And it was her way. She was trying to empower me. She was trying to say, hey, maybe you should go, you know, put a little makeup on and put some effort into yourself there because I was, I was probably three days into <laughs> just like the same pair of jeans or something. So she was, she was definitely trying to be empowering. It was one of those tapes that got stuck in my head where I'm like, I'm not pretty unless I put all this effort into it. I'm not pretty unless I put on all of this makeup and stuff. Um, and that, that wears on you, especially when you hear that as a teenage girl, or even there were, there were TV shows that I, that I watched. Um, one of the big ones was Nip Tuck. And I remember, God, I, I would have told myself to never watch that show for sure, because I feel like there was a lot of, um, damaging mindsets that came out of it uh what one of the biggest was when one of the main characters dr christian troy tell he's a plastic surgeon and he tells this model kimber once you stop striving for perfection you might as well be dead and the whole entire show is kind of framed around once you lose your youth and your looks you're worthless because that's all that's our value you know our value is our looks and if you if you lose those then you're nothing and considering I kind of had this mental breakdown in my 30s where you are, I was starting to, you know, age a little bit of, I was starting to change and whatnot. Tapes like that definitely did not help being stuck in my head. Or I remember Dexter, um, which is not a show you'd expect to get things stuck in your head from like this. But I remember um, Dexter saying, monsters don't deserve to live happily ever after. And I remember that being one of the biggest tapes in my head that I kept telling myself, I'm a monster. And monsters don't deserve to live happily ever after. So I, I feel like there was definitely a lot to work through. But if I would have known about that in the first place, like if my five pieces of puzzle, uh, if my five puzzle pieces of happiness was something that we taught kids in like junior high, high school, God, there would be so much less mental health issues in teenagers and adults. I, I feel like it would really have a positive effect on the suicide rate, on the depression rate, on um, the, the body image and stuff, because we, we just keep we just keep abdicating our power. We give up our power. We rely on, be it our parents or even like Chester. I relied on the, on this music to get me through things. I relied on the mental health professionals. I relied on medication, which never worked. I relied on other people constantly instead of saying, what can I do to, to be the best version of myself? Whether I'm in a relationship or not, whether I have my parents passed away or not, like whether I have these other people or not, how can I be the best version of myself? And I, I wish that I, somebody would have taught me that. I wish I could go back and teach myself that. And I think things would be very different. Did anyone, did anyone or does anyone get you? Does what? Does, do you, does anyone get you? Did, you know, all the people and the counselors and various people, I mean, did they, did they understand where you were coming from? I think on the vaguest level, I think on a very, very vague level, um, just because... I, I did have a lot of kind of cliche traumas, you know, like the sexual assault, that's not uncommon, um, even unfortunately for, for teenagers, you know, and my, losing my parents. Um, th these are traumas that, that, you know, obviously are not unique. A lot of people have them and a lot of people go through addiction. A lot of people go through like self-harm and stuff, but I feel like in cases like that, they, they try to just, they try to, instead of, of helping you process those feelings, like I remember actually great example, right after my mom died, I had this mental health professional 
And she said, okay, we're going to make a timeline of all the traumatic things that have happened in your life. I'm sitting there going, really? I just want to talk about my mom. <laughs> and she's like, no, we need to talk about all the things that happened in your childhood and all these like relationships that you're in. I'm like, but really my mom just died within the like last couple months. Like my mom just died and I really just need to talk about my mom. But I think that to deal with this, you need to deal with the underlying trauma. I'm like, bitch, I need to talk about my mother. And it's just, I was so frustrated because I felt like nobody would listen to me. So while, yes, you know, she didn't understand I had this underlying trauma. She didn't understand within that moment that underlying trauma was not triggering my behavior. The, the grief over my mom was, was triggering my behavior, was triggering my, my desire to do drugs or smoke or drink or self-harm or, you know, be in this, this unhealthy relationship, whatever the case was. Nobody understood that there were underlying reasons for it. Like the therapists were like, okay, we're going to try to make sure that you don't kill yourself. We're going to try to make sure that you don't use this week which is great. I mean, that, that is a great uh, goal to, to, you know, not utilize harmful uh, coping mechanisms, but at the same time, it was never, there was never any aspect of, okay, well, let's really look and see what you're feeling, Amanda, what you are thinking, Amanda, what you're going through, Amanda. It, it was more so of, well, we're going to tell you what you're going through. We're going to tell you what your issues are. We're going to tell you. And that just never worked for me. I mean, I, I definitely don't want a therapist who's going to sit there and play tic-tac-toe on the side of her, of her notes, you know, while, while talking to me and just let me blabber it all out because I can get that with my friends. But there has to be a level of listening and really genuinely listening because believe me, I've been in these relationships with people where they just don't freaking listen, uh, like even romantic relationships where the, you tell the person, okay, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm thinking. And they'll repeat back to you something in Japanese and you're just saying, wait, wait, what? The how did you, I don't even know how you got from point A to point B. And that's how I often felt with, with therapists. So I, I did feel very misunderstood. I did feel very um, jaded. That they wouldn't listen to me. Uh, when, I, when I tried to tell them um, the reactions of medications, because they, they'd try and put me on medication and they'd start me at a kid's dose because I am pretty tiny. And I did have a history of having bad reactions to medications. Um, and I'd overdosed on Prozac when I was a teenager. So they'd start me on a kid's dose. And even with the absolute lowest dose they could give me, it would cause hallucinations. I'd lay on the ground and think that I was dying. It would cause like extreme dissociation. So I think that I was trapped in a nightmare I couldn't get out of. I couldn't breathe. My heart just kept racing and it wouldn't stop. It would just loop. It wasn't like a panic attack that I needed to talk myself through or work through or find skills to get through. It was just like, it kept going and going and going and didn't stop. And that's terrifying. And I went and I remember every single time this ever happened and it happened every time um, I go to the professional and I'd say, look, like, this is what happened. Like I told you it would. And they would say, well, you just need to give it a couple weeks. Did, did you not hear the part about hallucinating and laying on the ground thinking that I was dying? Did you, did you, did you miss that part? Did you zone out there for a second? Because I can't live like that. Like I can't live like that for two weeks to then come back to you and say, guess what? I was right. It still doing it. And then they changed the medication to another one and it would do the same thing. And I think the best case scenario I ever had with any medication was where I still felt the pain inside. I just couldn't in any meaningful way outwardly express it. So I still felt just as hopeless and dark and in pain and depressed, but I couldn't really express it. It's just, I felt like a zombie. Like I just felt like I was there and I was like bare minimum, bare bones functioning. 
but I couldn't really express. I couldn't cry. I couldn't yell. I couldn't, you know, punch a pillow and get it out. It's just, I felt so kind of weak, I guess, and just zoned out that I, I had no functional way to, to process my feelings. So then I'm feeling the feelings and can't process them. So obviously that made things a lot worse. Um, and I think that was, that medication was one of my suicide attempts as a teenager because I just couldn't, couldn't deal with that. But there was a couple um, mental health professionals I had over the years that I really felt listened to me and made a genuine effort to, to help me in some functional way. Like I had the one that introduced me to DBT therapy, which is really useful for people that have a borderline personality disorder. So it gave me skills. It gave me functional skills. And I said, cool, this is something I could do. This is something I can use. And at the end of the day, whether you have borderline or not, um, it's, it's a really amazing, uh, it's a really amazing system. And I, I utilize some of those concepts in, in my, uh, in my framework, in my, um, by puzzle pieces of happiness framework, I kind of incorporate uh, some of those skills because they are really uh, helpful when, when you're going through stressful situations or when you're feeling uh, like you're struggling with your mental health, they are great uh, things to, to utilize. Uh, but I don't think there was a, I don't, I don't know that anyone has ever really truly quote unquote got me or understood me. I, I definitely feel like there's been people that tried or people that listened, but I don't feel like there's ever been anyone that's like, oh my God, like, I, I get it. I get what you're feeling. And if they do say that five minutes later, I'm like, you kind of don't <laughs> at all whatsoever. And I don't know if that's just because um, people don't listen or people just kind of want to, as I said, project their own experience. Like I definitely do get those people that say, oh, I understand so much because I went through this. And they, they can relate on some level, obviously, because they went through similar mental health struggles or maybe similar experiences with the sexual assault or the addiction or whatever. Um, so I definitely think there's people that um, that get certain aspects of it, but I don't think anyone's ever really understood how I feel inside. And I don't know if that's normal. I don't know if maybe nobody's really understood. I mean, obviously, nobody can get in my head and experience life through my eyes, so maybe none of us are really a hundred percent understood. Yeah. And it's when it's, well, that's like, if someone did understand you, how would that feel? I think I panic. I think, Oh my God, look, you're in my head. Get out, get out. I, I would probably be a little afraid, you know, that, that of how they were, they were um, understanding me on that level because I mean, even my best friend, doesn't get it like doesn't understand the deeper parts of what make me tick even if I've been totally honest um, with her or um, have really explained everything I mean I I wrote a memoir like I I have an agent and I'm <clears throat> we're, we're searching for a publisher currently and we're expecting to have it out in 2021 so I'm really excited about that and it's a memoir that's kind of more about how um, Chester and Lincoln Park saved me even after his own um, untimely death and how um, they guided me through a lot of these different experiences and stuff and how um, I, how life with, with borderline personality disorder, or how life with those symptoms was. Uh, so in, in, in doing that, I think that was actually truthfully a big part of the healing process because I got to just tell my story, but I, I let my best friend read the rough draft of my manuscript and she's just bawling at like two in the morning. Cause she said, you know, I, I knew what you went through 
on a very superficial level. Like I knew that you were, you were sexually assaulted. I knew that and you were raped. Um, I knew you lost your parents, but I didn't know the deeper part of it. I didn't know how you really felt. And maybe, you know, with, with somebody reading this, they will be able to understand deeper because even with your therapist, I mean, I never really went into the super, super intimate details of these things. It's just not something you talk about. Like, it's not like, Hey, here, let me give you every gruesome detail of this sexual assault. And, uh, when I, when I finally did tell my best friend about it quite some time later, when I ended up breaking down and admitting it to my mom, you know, still, we don't really talk about the details. We don't really talk. It's just, I was raped. That's, that's really all it is. And, um, I think there's some, there's really something to be said for telling your story. I think that's, that's a great way to, to be more understood, to, to get some of that pain out for me. It was, it was very cathartic to get it out of my head, you know, to say, okay, this did happen to me and now I'm going to use it for something good. I'm going to use it to help other people who might be going through these same struggles. What, what did you learn from that now retrospectively? The writing the book or just the... Through, I mean, really, I suppose, well, both of the, the book, but also through the rape. You know, I think the biggest thing I had to learn was forgiveness. I mean, I'll never forget what happened to me, but I realized that in writing the book, actually, it took me all this time. This happened to me when I was 16. Like I said, I'm now 35 and I just uh, wrote the book and if if, if so I wrote it in the last like year and I know that I'll never forget, but I realized that in, in holding onto it and letting it stay in my head, he still had power over me. And when I wrote it out, when I processed through it, when I said, okay, this did happen to me and there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. And it's, it, it obviously was a terrible thing to have happen. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but I had to learn how to forgive him for me like he had his own journey that he was going through I have no idea what his background was I have no idea what he'd gone through I have no idea why he did something like this and I don't want to say oh I feel sorry for him but at the same time we have to think maybe he did have his own awful child awful experiences and this was his really really terrible way of projecting that and once I looked at him as a human albeit not a very great one but once I looked at him as a human and realized that like I said, he was going through his own journey. I could kind of say, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to let you have my power anymore. I'm not going to spend the rest of my life looking at myself as a victim over something that happened to me when I was 16 years old. And I'm not going to spend the world has control over me. And it's like, okay, he, he took control of me for that moment in time for that, um, for that incident. But if I kept sitting there ruminating it and I never got past it, then I might as well have just stayed in that car seat for the rest of my life. What's your earliest conscious memory? My earliest conscious memory? Um, I remember when I was five or so, I stopped breathing. And I don't know why, but I'd stopped breathing, breathing and had to go to the hospital. And I have like a very, very vague memory of them putting me on the kitchen counter and the, the paramedics and stuff all being around me and my parents um, just being very, very upset. So obviously like crying. So I don't have a super vivid memory of it, but I, I do remember when I was five, I stopped breathing. Um, I don't have any memories of the babysitter. I only know about that through what my parents 
had told me, and I, I did have a fear of um, confined spaces and stuff for a while. Now the ironic thing is my closet is one of my comfort spaces. So when I'm trying to just get away from everything and kind of shut myself in, I'll go on the floor of my closet and just curl up with my blanket and do Sudoku or read or something or journal. Um, so it kind of actually strangely became a a comfort um, for me. And I think that was another one of those like FU moments. To, it's like, well, I'm taking this back. Like you can't have my closet. Like I'm not going to be afraid of you anymore. So it's kind of that way of peeking under the bed and saying, okay, I don't always have to be scared of the monster there, you know? Uh, other than that, I mean, I, I have a lot of, of random memories of like Christmases with my parents or um, I remember being, <laughs> I remember being probably eight or so. And I lived in Missouri and my dad, uh, we got a four wheeler. This was like the big thing for that winter. My dad got this four wheeler and some of my favorite pictures of me and my dad, because I have like leg warmers on as on, on as like, um, as gloves and just like all sorts of random weird things that I pull out of my closet or my parents' closet to try and keep warm with. And my, my dad has like this, this beanie thing like tied around his neck, not even on his bald little head, but like, it was just ridiculous. But, um, he, he, like we, we got to go out together um, and just ride the four wheeler. And I don't remember ever doing, I'm sure we did, but I don't remember ever doing it again. I just remember that one time of getting to romp out in the snow with my dad while we were all wrapped up in ridiculous random items of clothing. It actually makes me think of big daddy where uh, Adam Sandler tells the little boy that he can dress himself, you know, so he comes out and he's like in galoshes and all sorts of, that was me. I was Frankenstein. I was, I was that little boy. Uh, so I, I, I do have lots of good memories as far as my family life, like I don't have any particularly terrible, terrible memories of my family life. Um, it, it, it didn't really start till, till my school life. You know, my school life was really started, what started tearing me down and more specifically boys. Once boys got introduced into my life, ooh wee, like that's when things really started to kind of go downhill. <laughs> because I feel like I won't blame the male species. I'm not that type of person. I think that we're not taught how, number one, to have self-esteem like we're not taught how to have self-esteem self-worth how to think highly of ourselves without the confines of relationships so even in junior high or high school it's well who's she dating who she get to go out with who does she you know land quote unquote did she land the 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 jock did she land the nerd and we're defined by who we're with and I think that if there was less of a narrative about that more of a narrative of like wow did you see how well she did on that test did you see how well she did that in gym class you know we, we would probably start moving forward a lot more um, if we'd stop having that narrative of defining people by who they're with and stuff and more by their accomplishments or by their personality or the kind thing that they did for that person in the hallway, or I think that that would, would have a lot more, um, in, like a lot more power, but yeah, I, 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 I love my child. Like looking back, I, I am so grateful to have had two parents that loved each other and loved me, um, and really, did everything they could to give me the best shot possible within their knowledge. Like they really did the best they could with what they had, uh, despite the fact that they didn't have a lot of money or anything that they didn't have <clears throat> a lot of influence in the, in the town or anything. And I was, <laughs> I was looking through my family Bible, which is kind of funny because I'm an atheist, but I was looking through my family Bible the other day and I found this note from my mom and it was saying how how happy she had been to go through the experience of being homeless with my dad. Cause when, 
when she got pregnant with me, they were driving semi, like they were, they were truck drivers and they drove semi together. And when she got pregnant with me, uh, they ended up selling their semi to be able to have enough money to pay the hospital bill to have me. And for the first few months, they were homeless. We were homeless on a beach in Tampa, Florida. And my mom had written a note to my dad saying how grateful she was that she got to have that experience with him. Like, let's just take a step back to, to realize the impact of that. She was grateful for the experience to be a homeless parent on, the, on a beach in Florida because they loved each other and they knew how to be happy with each other and happy that they got to have me because I, I was a very much wanted child. Like they, they tried, um, my mom tried to get pregnant. They were a little bit older. Like they were in their thirties, I think like later thirties when they had me and they tried. And my mom had had a period um, <clears throat> in her pregnancy that had made her think that she had lost me. And like, she was just devastated. So when they did get to have me, like that was everything to them. It's like, what, what else could she want or need? It wasn't like, oh my God, we don't have a flat screen TV. Oh my God, we don't have like a really toasty bed. Like they, we, we, they made do in their car. Um, and that was, that was just so powerful for me to see that letter. I think I'm going to post it actually on my social media. because so it was just so powerful for me to see that note from my mom, like that little reminder of we don't need all the crap we think we need. We don't need to keep up with the Joneses because first and foremost, the Joneses are probably in debt. Secondly, like the, it, it's arbitrary. It's just all these arbitrary things that we keep thinking are going to make us happy. We run on the sedonic treadmill thinking that, oh, well, if I just get this job, if I just find another job, if I just find another partner, if I just do this, if I just do that, I'm going to, you're not, you're not at all. And even when I was going through um, some of the, the harder parts of my struggles when I was, you know, in recovery or whatever, I was still sitting there going, I'm doing this. Like, and look at all that I have. I mean, even just look for those of you that are watching this video, the things I have in this office that are completely and utterly like unnecessary, but I can look at every single one of them and say, I'm grateful for that. Like, I'm grateful for the experiences that I got to have in doing these paintings here. I'm grateful, you know, for my, <laughs> my nerdy, piece of um, memorabilia off of the set of Dexter that I had gotten. This is Harry's police uniform with a certificate of authenticity. So it's an actual piece from the set. So I'm like grateful that I get to have my little nerdy thing and grateful, you know, for my, my fresh water here and grateful that we're getting to have this conversation. I'm grateful that I, I'm in this room, you know, where I do get to be protected from the elements, be it the really, 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 really hot summers here in Arizona, or when it's cooling down a little bit more, I can snuggle up in my blanket. Like I'm grateful for those things, but I could be happy even if I didn't have them. And I realize that now, like I realize I could be happy whether I had them or not. You talked a while ago about, you know, being, you know, you're sort of almost keeping, you know, for happiness and fulfillment. Is that something you've had before and is that where you are now or where are you at in your journey? Like I said, I don't think I'd ever felt genuine happiness and fulfillment before. I don't think that I'd ever been in a place where I could say I'm a happy person up until ironically 2020. And tell me how crazy that is where everybody's like, oh my God, the sky is falling and the world's falling apart. And oh my God, there's a global pandemic. And oh my God, the wrong like old wrinkly white guys in the White House and blah, blah, blah. It's just, you know, crisis after crisis. That's the, that's the, 
the narrative that we're given by the media or by people on social media or whatever, it's just the sky is falling and everything's horrible and everybody is dying. Well, let me tell you, the sky is always falling and everyone's always dying. So <laughs> that's nothing new. Uh, but for me to be able to find this level of fulfillment and happiness while everybody else is going, holy crap, and running around like a chicken with their head cut off um, has been a really powerful moving like telling experience for me because it's like if I haven't relapsed now if I haven't relapsed in 2020 with everything going on in my personal professional and you know the overall vibe of the world I think I'm okay I think I'm gonna be all right I don't think I'm ever going to have to worry ever again if right now like I have made it through all this without relapsing into self-harm or or drugs or whatever but no I don't think I was ever happy before I think I had happy moments like I think like I said I, I had happy moments in my childhood where I definitely remember being uh, really over the moon excited with with uh, my parents or whatever but it was never sustainable it was it it was kind of like okay that would come up but the underlying feeling was always just this all-consuming depression like it was this just doom and um, process like i remember getting up every day when i was depressed which was most of my life I remember getting up used to feel like rolling out of bed and looking around and going, ugh, I don't want to do this again. I want to do this. I don't know how I'm going to find the strength to get out of bed this morning. I don't know how I'm going to find the strength to do any things I need to do today because screw this and screw the world and screw my circumstances. And I hate this. And it was just very like, ugh, <laughs> very, very much dread. And one of the indicators for me that I was coming out of this was when I'd get up and I'd think, you know what, what can I do today? Like what, not necessarily what can I accomplish, but can I read that book that I really have been looking forward to reading? Can I like finally catch that show? I'm so excited to see what's going to happen on my soap opera today. Don't any of you judge me right now for being unapologetically addicted to the bold and beautiful. Um, I, I, I just, I would get up and I think sometimes, yeah, I think, man, I'm going to really nail that modeling gig. Like, I'm going to get that, that I'm going to uh, get accepted for that, that article I've really been wanting to write for that publication. Or I, I would just, I'd wake up and it would be an adventure. It was like, sure, there's going to be trials and there's going to be things, but I liken it to a video game because <clears throat> I'm a nerd, as you can see by my Triforce tattoo on my hand where I got scratched the other day by a cat. But I just Triforce tattoo on my hand for those of you that can't see me. Um, that stands for Power, Wisdom, Courage. It's from The Legend of Zelda. And when I could get up and, and think of my life as, okay, what kind of video game would you just walk in and go straight to the princess? Like, you don't have to collect any items. You don't have to fight any bad guys. You don't have to learn anything. You just walk in and you walk straight to the princess and that's the game. That'd be freaking boring. Like, nobody would pay for that. That's awful. Why would you want to live your life like that? Why would you want to live your life where you just walk straight into the princess and that's done? And there you go. And y'all are just going to wander around God's green high rule and do nothing for the rest of your lives. Like, that is not exciting to me. Um, and once I kind of started shifting that mindset and thinking, okay, like, there's probably going to be some monsters that I'm going to have to fight today. And there's probably going to be some items that I'm going to have to collect that I'll use once and never use again. That's fine. Probably going to be some keys that I'm going to have to find to unlock these doors. But, um, like, it, it's okay. That's okay. That's life. That's what life's supposed to be. Life's not supposed to be you wake up and everything's perfect all the time. Because think of it this way. Chester lost his life to suicide. He had everything anybody could want. He had all the money. He had the fame. He had, you know, a, a booming career. He had a family, like wife, kids, everything anybody could possibly want. He could buy anything in the world he wanted. Guess what happened? 
he lost his life to suicide. It's not about any of that because the most successful people still struggle. The most successful people still have human emotions. <laughs> the most successful people can still fall, you know, into depression or into uh, these, these traps. And yeah, for me now, like I said in the beginning, I, I, I can define myself as a happy person because even though I'm not happy all the time, because that's, it's not realistic, even though I have my struggles, I can define myself as a happy person because I feel like for the most part, when, when things are neutral, when I'm just walking the dog or I'm just reading my book or I'm just brushing my teeth, I feel happy. It's not like there's this underlying darkness that's just all consuming me all the time. It's not this constant rain cloud that I just have to swat away every now and then to get two seconds of a prize. It's like now, okay, that base emotion is happiness and contentment. That base emotion is going to be a, a good one, like a, a fulfilling one. And when I was in depression, like my base emotion was way down here below zero. It wasn't even at zero. It was way below zero. I talk about the happiness spectrum in um, my happiness boost program, because I think that's so important to understand that nobody is going to be at their optimal all the time, like at their optimal happiness all the time. That's not realistic. But when you can, when you can say, okay, I'm here, like I'm at the, the happier part of the scale. Like I'm on a happier part when I'm at that base point then that's, that's where you want to be. And to understand that everybody experiences emotions differently is another huge thing because I have a friend who I feel like even if she was blissfully happy in her life, she would never get like I did. She will never get like I do where it's just like, oh my God, did you see what happened? I just get very, very excited. I get very over the moon, like enthusiastic. I'm very giddy. My inner child takes over and I'm like, oh my God, did you see that NSYNC had the special performance on it? And like, you know, I just, I just really geek out. Um, I really enjoy meeting, you know, some of my childhood celebrities and heroes and stuff. And, and that's just something that's really cool to me. I'll go back and watch, you know, 90s wrestling matches or NSYNC concerts. And I still get so excited. Like my face just lights up, but that's not everybody. Like that might not be, you might just not experience happiness like that, but that's not to say that you shouldn't be, you know, really holding space for yourself when you do feel happiness in the way that it presents itself to you. But um, when you're talking about like where I was and, and uh, what was like the process and how I knew I got there, one of my other big indicators other than the waking up in the morning was I, I was several months into it. So I was, I was already seeing the benefits, but at this point I was kind of one of those really, really toxically productive people where everything had to be very structured. That's how I was dealing with the anxiety. It's like, everything had to be structured. So I'd have 30 minutes for this and I do this for an hour and then I have five minutes for this. And then I might be able to give myself 30 seconds to pee, you know, like everything was very structured and scheduled. And my son wanted to go for bike ride. I'm like, okay. I had this much time like planned out for my kid today, blah, blah, blah. I can do a 30 minute bike ride and then we'll still have like 15 minutes before he goes to bed. So I'm, I'm timing this all out in my head to an obsessive level. And I said, okay, we have exactly 30 minutes. I'm going to like put the timer on my phone and everything. We have 30 minutes so we can go to this point and then we can come right back and that's it. So of course, any of you that have ever spent five minutes with a kid, that's not how kids work. Kids are not like, okay, we're going to go there. We're going to come back. We're going to go there and we're going to touch every single freaking tree on the way. And we're going to like inspect every blade of grass. But he did keep wanting to stop and look at stuff. And by, by the time it was halfway over, I'm like, okay, we have to get back right now. We have to get back. And he's like, no, look. And 
he's talking to me in French. He's saying, regarde, maman, regarde, which is look, mama, look. And I'm just at this point about to just strangle the kid because I'm like, I need to get back. I need to get to, I don't even remember what it was. Truthfully, I don't even remember what it was I needed to get back to. That's how important it was, right? I don't remember what it was, but I was like, I have to get back because I have the schedule to keep. And he was very insistent on stop. And I took a deep breath. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to yell at my kid right now. I'm not going to freak out. And I follow his, his finger. I follow what he's pointing at. And there is this whole entire yard full of roses, just all these different color roses, like yellow and pink and white and blue. I didn't even know that existed, but blue, (laughs) just all these different color roses. And I just stopped and my jaw just totally dropped. And he comes over and he takes my hand and he said, je t'aime maman, which means I love you, mama. And I said, je t'aime mon loulou, which means I love you, my little wolf. It's just a term of endearment, a French term of endearment. Uh, And I remember that that was the first time I really felt like I, I really felt connected to my kid. And I said, I don't don't my schedule. Nothing could have been more important than that. No, no checklist, no job, no nothing on the planet could have been more important than that moment of literally stopping and smelling the roses, I guess. Um, And and just having that experience there with my son. We, we so often, I, I hear a lot of people say, well, I have to work this 60 hour week job to provide for my family. Okay, well, when's the last time you really spent any quality time with them, though? When's the last time you really just listened to what your your kid wanted to talk about or wanted to share or wanted to say? Or when's the last time you just, you know, spent quality time playing the game they wanted to play or doing what they wanted to do? Yes, there is a certain level of you have to provide for your family, but I will tell you, I'll be the first person to tell you. And my kids told me this. He's like, I would rather us not have a lot of stuff and me be able to spend more time with you than us have lots of money and be living in a big, huge house with like lots and lots of toys. And this is like, literally my kid is now nine. And he told me this about a year ago. So he's about eight. This is what my eight-year-old had told me. I would rather live in a smaller place with less things and be able to spend time with my mom than live in a big house with, you know, all of these extra channels and extra toys and expensive electronics. That's not what your family needs. That's not what your friends need. That's not what you need to be generally truly happy. I mean, if you don't discount time and how valuable time is, because I will tell you that's more valuable to yourself and to your family and to your friends than it, what any job could, could give you. Do you know, I mean, how is, you know, not, not being an addict, how does that serve you? You know, I will say when I, when I was using regularly, it helped. That's why I do it. It helps. I'm not going to lie. It helped. It helped me uh, make the depression more manageable. It helps me make these things more manageable at the time. But without it, at the, in the beginning, it was scary because I didn't know what to do or how to cope or how to, you know, get by, how to really live at all. And when I looked, but when I look back now, it's not that it made it better. It was just that I was in so much pain that I wasn't dealing with that it made it, as we were talking about earlier, survivable. In the long run, the come downs were hell. Let me just start there. Like it, it was great when you're high, that's fine and dandy. But when, when you're not and you have to come down off of that, it's a living hell. It was w- almost worse than the medications and the side effects of the medications sometimes. Um, if, I, if I'd done enough, it was just completely and utterly awful. Um, and even when I just did a small bit, it still was not a pleasant experience. 
And being able to know now that I can live a happy, functional life without any of these things. I don't need them. So even if they did in some way help, I don't need them. And that's empowering. And also it saves a lot of money. Just going to put that out there. It saves a lot of money. But uh, it, it's, it's very empowering to know that I can do this without those substances. I can do this without having to numb myself just to survive. I don't need to be in survival mode anymore because now I can, I can be happy. I can enjoy my life. And that, I mean, I, I, I'm a writer. I write, I write articles. I wrote a book and I cannot find the words to express to you how good it feels to know that I did this. So at the end of the day, I'm actually really grateful for that therapist because she told me I couldn't and I proved her wrong. And it feels good to know that I did it on my own. I did this on my own. I didn't rely on the therapy. I didn't rely on the medication. I didn't rely on Chester. I didn't rely on other people. I didn't rely on the drugs or the alcohol or the, the razor blade or whatever. I did it. I did it. I, I saved myself. I healed myself. It's, you know, not that sort of, is, is that, does that bring happiness to you? Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Like beyond happiness, like just this, this fulfillment, this high, like I never knew what a natural high was, but it's something like what I feel when I get all excited about talking about this, because there is, I, I don't think a lot of people really tap into their own power anymore. I really don't. I think most people give it up in some way or way, shape or form. And I hear, hear so often people saying, well, the exact same thing I was saying, you don't understand. I'm different. My depression's different. And even if that's the case, like there are a lot of things that you can do to be at the, at the top end of your own happiness spectrum. But now if, if I can wrap up, like acing that test that you studied for running an entire like 5k marathon, meeting all the guys of NSYNC and having Tom Ellis tell me that I was hot. If I grab all those feelings into one like ball, that's kind of what I'd be feeling right now. Having that hug from my kid, like all of those things wrapped into one is like what I feel when I stop to think about, I did this for me. I did this. I proved him wrong. I proved myself wrong. I proved the world wrong. Like I healed myself from something they told me I could not heal myself from. I did it in ways that they told me I couldn't do it and I did it. And there's nothing in the world that could, there's absolutely no drug that could replicate this feeling. Like I, I never felt this good on cocaine ever. Cocaine was just a bandaid to get through uh, the times and it made me feel better at the time, but I never, ever, ever, ever felt as good as I do now on anything I've ever done, be it self-harm or cocaine or weed or alcohol or any of that. Um, this is it. This is this is my drug of choice now. Are you are you clear what initially triggered your depression? I don't think it was one thing. I think it was a compilation of a lot of different things, um, from the bullying to unresolved trauma. You know, with the babysitter, with the sexual assault, with losing my parents. I think it was a lot of different things uh, paired with an unhealthy lifestyle. You know, that just exacerbated the symptoms of of this trauma or of this uh, behavior and whatnot. I think it was a lot of different things. So I don't, th I think that was my biggest mistake. I will tell you when I was on the ledge and I said, I feel like I've done everything. I really did. And I, I thought that I'd done everything, but the problem was is I hadn't done them in tangent with each other and I hadn't done them consistently. So I think that I found, and uh, many of my clients have found the same thing that there are <clears throat> certain things that have to be 
in place. It can't just be, okay, I'm going to go do this yoga. Or, okay. I'm just going to go take this medication or, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. It's not one thing. There is no happy pill. I'm sorry. If that's what you're looking for and listening to, you know, this podcast, this interview, you want me to tell you that one thing that's just going to make your whole life awesome. Well, that ain't going to happen. Sorry, because I don't, I don't believe it exists. I don't believe that there's one happy pill we can take to quote unquote fix this. First and foremost, we're not broken. You're not broken. You're, you're a human being having a human experience. You might be struggling with symptoms of depression. You might be struggling with symptoms of anxiety. I will say that even when I do get in the mindsets and I have had, you know, a rough year, like everybody else, there have been, there has been a bit of anxiety and stuff going on or higher stress levels. And when I get in that, I don't say I'm depressed right now. I say I'm feeling symptoms of depression right now. Cause I'm not depressed. I'm not a depressed person. I'm not, I, I, I'm not I'm depressed. I'm just having symptoms. And I feel like that was another way of taking my power back, you know, but overall, I think that the, the biggest thing is, is putting all the pieces together. And that's why I did my, my five puzzle pieces of happiness framework is because it puts all of the pieces together where people are telling you, Oh, well, you just need to eat right. Oh, well, you just need to take a medication or an herb or do some yoga or read a self-help book. And you know, while those things might be like, okay, they might move you up a notch it's not going to sustainably help you have that fulfilling life. And it's not going to put you at the optimal end of your happiness spectrum. It's not going to help you find optimal physical and mental health. And it's not going to help you lead a happier life. There's, there's puzzle pieces that have to be in place if you're going to do that. Do you, I mean, do you get a, a chance? Cause I mean, I love that, even that framework and that structure. I mean, do you, is that something you take yourself through? Is it, is it something, you know, is that something that's, you know, being implemented into your life and your day to day, or is it an ongoing process for you? It's definitely an ongoing process. It is implemented into my day to day. I did figure it out on my own. Um, <clears throat> I had majored as a mind body wellness coach back in 2000. I'm, like my last classes were like 2011, 2012. Uh, so I got my certificate back then, but I kind of lied to myself where it's like I majored in holistic nutrition and I knew a lot of these things, but I kind of still wanted to eat the cupcakes. So I'd be like, well, it's vegan, gluten-free, organic cupcakes. So of course I can eat a whole box. And when you're, when you're putting that much sugar and stuff into your body, that's going to affect your, your mood. It's going to affect your mental health. So I feel like I wasn't being honest with myself. So I had to kind of go back to the basics of, um, like I said, taking control of what I could do, looking into what is going to affect my mental health, what do I do that does affect my mental health, et cetera, uh, really, really reanalyzing that. I had to really just take a look at my whole entire lifestyle and restructure it. <laughs> like I had to restructure my whole life from the ground up. And that was really hard, especially, you know, when, when I was doing all of these things, I had all these projects, I couldn't just not be a mom. I just couldn't take off and not be a mom or take off and, you know, not work or or not do these other things. I had obligations, you know, in my life. So to say, I'm going to scrap everything and kind of start over felt crazy. You know, it felt, it felt overwhelming, but it, it was so worth it. It was so worth it. And it was, there were different parts of the journey. Like there was the part of the journey of figuring out these five puzzle pieces. I obviously at the time didn't know they would be five puzzle pieces, but that's pretty poetic because I've always had this obsession with the number five ever since my NSYNC days when I was 13, back in the like late nineties. So it kind of worked out that it was five puzzle pieces. Maybe I should have named each of them after one of the members of NSYNC. <laughs> but um, it, it turned out that there were like these five core things that I found really had to be implemented in order for me to stay at that, at that top end of my having the spectrum. And for me to have the optimal mental health, these five things had to consistently 
be implemented into my life. So it is something that it's not, you know, I take a pill and then I'm better and I never have to work at it again. It is something that I had to accept my life was going to change. I had to accept it's going to change my life. I was going to change um, my mindset and I was going to accept that what I learned was wrong. And that is hard. That is hard learning that, you know, the things that people have told you was wrong. The things that you've learned was wrong. The things that have been accepted in our site as absolute truth was wrong. I had to accept that I had to find another way of looking at it because those things hadn't served me and those things hadn't worked for me. And now I had found another way. So it was really a matter of in the beginning, implementing the things that I thought would make the biggest change, you know, based on like my research and my, my education and whatnot, uh, finding the things that would make the biggest change and then kind of working from there to say, okay, now what can I adjust now? What can I adjust now? What can I adjust? You any idea what you're capable of? Anything, anything I freaking want. I'm a wizard. It's funny you say that because, you know, people had always put so many limitations on me. Like I said, I was told, oh, you can't shoot for Playboy because you're not, you're, you're not pretty enough. You don't have big enough boobs. You don't have this. You don't have that. Guess what I did? People would tell me, oh, you can't travel as a single mom, you know, because you don't have money. You don't have this. You don't have this. In 2015, I went to London, Paris, Rome, Iceland, Mexico, 10-day trip with my son uh, across Arizona and up the coast of California and a couple of other places in there. Um, I was told I, I really wanted to start a project on YouTube where I could interview different celebrities about, um, about mental health and about their struggles and stuff. And people are like, oh, that's ridiculous. Why do you think that you're special enough to do that? Yeah, well, I interviewed Billy Bob Thornton and uh, Jamie Bennington. That was a big one. Uh, Chester Sun. Chester Bennington's son, I got to interview him. I got to interview Abby Johnson. I got death threats over that one, so that one was fun. I got to interview um, Eric Bischoff, Diamond Dallas Page, um, Butch Patrick, who played Eddie Munster on The Munsters. Uh, I got to interview all these different uh, celebrities. Jennifer Jimenez, who is an a-, a supermodel and actress. Uh, so I don't really think I have limitations at this point. Maybe I can't fly. I haven't figured that one out yet. Got to grow my wings. Still working on that, but... I don't really think I have these limitations anymore because people always tell me, you know, I don't know how you do this crap, but you could literally do anything at this point and nothing would shock me. Billy Bob Thornton is endorsing my book. Like Billy Bob Thornton, this, this Oscar, like Golden Globe winning actor is endorsing my book. And two years ago, I was at rock bottom and thought I was done and that I had nothing worth saying, nothing worth living for, nothing in the world like to make the pain go away. And I'm just sitting there going, holy crap, like, how did I manage this? And my friend said, you know, I always worry about the people you date because everybody has that bucket list of people, like their free pass list of, well, if I could be with a celebrity, if I could have a one night stand with a celebrity, she said, you could call me right now and tell me that you were pregnant with Tom Ellis's kid and it wouldn't even shock me in the slightest bit. I'd be like, well, <laughs> you can get some good shot support, but uh, like just nothing shocks my friends anymore because I just pull things out of my butt. I, I will say, you know what? I really want to do this and then I'll find a way to do it. Like I, I had really wanted to, um, I'd really wanted to interview Jamie and I interviewed Jamie. I really wanted to, you know, find an agent and I found an agent. I really wanted to travel. Like that was my big thing. I ended up traveling. And funny enough, I remember I was in a life coaching class, like for my schooling. And uh, we, we were supposed to be doing this exercise to find out what it was we really wanted, what it was we truly desired for all the Lucifer fans out there, what we truly desired. 
And I remember at first it was like, well, I'd like to do this, but I really want to do this, but, and it was just, there was always a, but there was always an excuse. I can't do this because X, Y, Z limitations. Like it was usually money or whatever. And that was when I figured out I really wanted to travel. Like I figured it out in this, this coaching uh, exercise. And I remember kind of going crazy with my visualization because I was just sitting there daydreaming. Like I started daydreaming about all these places I was going to go. And I'm like, oh, and I just saw myself, you know, eating crepes and drinking my Earl Grey tea on this very specific little uh, French patio, like this little French bistro on this patio. And in 2015, when I went to Paris, I ended up on that patio and it freaked me out because I'd never, as far as I know, ever seen a picture of it. I'd, I'd, I didn't know. It wasn't like a big bistro that I'm like, I have to go to this restaurant. Like, this is my goal to go to this restaurant. Like, no, I just, this is what I pictured in my head. And right down to the napkins, to the decoration, like it was the same freaking bistro. <laughs> like it was the same little thing. I had my crepes. I had my Earl Grey tea. Like it was, it was freaky. It was really, really crazy um, that I just almost accidentally manifested this, this experience. I mean, you mentioned there that, you know, you said you're, you're atheist, but I mean, would you describe yourself as spiritual or where do you set in that grounds? Yeah. I mean, maybe agnostic is a better way of saying it. I only say atheist because I don't believe that there is a higher power that has influence over us. And it surprises a lot of people to know that when I when I went into recovery, I never went through any type of program. And reason being is because I was not about to say I'm powerless to this addiction because I know that for me, I would have lost control. Like for me to say I'm powerless to this, it would have been like, oh, well, I'm powerless. Okay, cool. Let's just keep doing it. That, that mindset didn't work for me. I mean, I don't believe that there's any higher power that has any kind of like real control in my life. I do believe that there's some kind of energy out there, like call it universe. If it, if, it, if it wants to be called God, whatever, but I just don't believe in organized religion. I'll put it that way. I don't believe in organized religion. And I don't believe that, you know, there's some sky daddy that's sitting up there going, now don't you touch yourself because that's against like this arbitrary book of rules. I just think that's kind of silly. I think that, you know, if there is some kind of, of deity, I hope that I'm making him, her, it proud. Like I, I, I'm not, I'm not a not believer to be rebellious. I mean, if right now there was an irrefutable proof of something, I would happily accept it with open arms. You know, I would, I would happily accept Jesus or Buddha or Krishna or whatever the case was. I'm totally open-minded. And I think there's a lot of good, um, stories and good experiences and good lessons uh, that come from from these things and uh, the days for girls charity that i'm involved in was actually founded by an lds woman and a lot of our work is with lds wards and in lds uh churches and stuff and i'm 100 percent okay with that i think that they do great work you know I, I i'm happy and proud to work alongside them i have no issue with that but yeah i i do think that i definitely have some kind of spiritual narrative i just I don't have a name for it and I don't think that it necessarily involves there being a God. So I guess atheist is the easiest term for me. Um, but I, I definitely do think that there's some kind of energy. I think that there was something that stopped me from jumping. You know, it wasn't just in my head. I feel like there was definitely some kind of bigger force. And I think that there's definitely a lot of things that we don't understand and maybe, you know, they can be scientifically explained. Maybe the concept of ghosts or angels or any of that can be a hundred percent scientifically explained and we just don't have a way of doing it yet. Um, but there's definitely, there's a lot of things we don't understand and there's a lot of stuff that I can't explain and I'm definitely open-minded to, uh, 
whatever the reality is. I just, I don't believe in organized religion and I don't really like putting labels on myself as far as my belief system. And do you, do you feel connected to your mother or connected to your father still? That's, that's interesting because when I did have the breakdown in the hotel room, like, like I remember kind of just feeling it was for the first, it was the first time I really felt very connected to them, you know, very connected to, well, not the first time I take that back. The first time was I got married <laughs> in May of 2018. And I remember just before that, I had gone to this wrestling thing in honor of my dad, because my dad and I grew up watching professional wrestling, as I was saying about Diamond Dallas Page, like he was one of my heroes. So I got to go to this wrestling thing that had happened in January. And um, Hulk Hogan staying and Eric Bischoff were there. And Eric Bischoff was one of my first real crushes. Hulk Hogan, of course, you know, everybody hero worshipped Hulk Hogan. And Sting was one of my big heroes that I, I will never forget. There was this time where um, there was a storyline where he, um, he ended up telling one of the other people, how bad do you want it? Like he came out of the rafters all badass cool and he'd end up saying how bad do you want it I actually have that I, I can't turn my camera but I actually have that written on a little thing here on my desk how bad do you want it because it just really even as a child motivated me if you want something bad enough you're gonna find a way like you will find a way think about it right now if somebody took my kid ransom and said you have to find a hundred thousand dollars we're gonna kill your kid I would find a hundred thousand dollars no questions asked you would find the hundred thousand dollars like every parent listening to this you know you would find a hundred thousand dollars no matter what it took now think about life like that. Think about life like you will do what it takes. But I, I remember going to the event and I was so like bracing myself for the spiritual experience where I was going to feel so close to my dad and blah, blah, blah. And when I left, I was just like, oh, well, there was no, you know, light and ethereal swirls and glitter and sparkles. There was no angels that, you know, I, and I, I remember just being very disappointed. And I posted my pictures on social media because that's what you do, you know? <laughs> it's what we do in, 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 this, in this decade. So I ended up posting my pictures on social media and then also like we do in this time, well, I don't now, but I did at the time, I always check my phone first thing in the morning. <clears throat> I remember checking my phone and my friend had texted me and said, oh, that's so cool that you met the Hulkster and everything. Your dad would be so proud. I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And he said, and uh, I work with Eric's wife, Eric Bischoff's wife, she's so sweet. And I stopped and went, wait a second, you work at Sweeha, which is the school I went to. It's where I, I got my, my degree as my body wellness coach and uh, did a lot of my yoga training. I was like, wait a second, you work? And then it, I, it hit me and I realized that Eric Bischoff's wife was one of my life coaching teachers. And at the time I was still planning my wedding. This was January. So this was a few months before my wedding. And I had no one to walk me down the aisle. And I've been kind of meditating about that and thinking like, I don't know what to do. I don't have any guy friends that are like that close. I don't have any siblings. I don't have any family members that could do that. I didn't know what to do. And I just sent her a message and I knew like deep in my heart, I knew that this was going to happen. I sent her a message and just explained, look, like your husband's legacy is the reason that my father and I had a relationship growing up. And I know that you guys are probably really busy and I, I'm willing to do like whatever, but is there any way that Eric would consider standing in for my dad and walking me down the aisle at my wedding? And they called me later that night to say yes. And I know that that was my dad. I mean, that does not happen for normal people. I know that. And I just know that that was my dad's way of being at my wedding. And I did in that moment feel, you know, very close. And even every now, every time now, when I do talk to Lori or Eric, I feel so very close to my dad, knowing that in the most 
crazy out there way possible because my parents knew that I did not do subtle. I do not do subtle. Things have to be like in your face. Like it was a brick to my face uh, that, that they were still there, you know, that they were still with me, that they were still going to be there for the big moments. And yeah, I, I, I didn't up until, you know, that experience was actually the first time where I really felt connected to them. But then when I was in the hotel room and I was falling apart and I just really could kind of sense their presence. And I had cried a lot of times before. I'd, I definitely cried before. I definitely screamed and prayed and done whatever, you know, you do when you're having a nervous breakdown on the floor. I, I'd done that before, but in that moment, it was just different. And I can't really explain how, but I just broke down to my very core. And I remember just kind of sensing something there. And I, I could kind of just feel their advice. It's not like I heard voices. I wasn't hearing their voice or anything, but I just felt, you know, this, this parent, like this loving parental advice and comfort. That's, I mean, it's, it's lovely to have that connection, you know, and, you know, for, to be in that place. Yeah. It took a long time for sure. Mm. I mean, are, on your journey, are you at a, a point of you know, are you point the past the point of elasticity? Do you think you know the point of non-return? You know that you've you know stuff that you can never unknow again. Does oh that yeah. Make sense? Oh yeah, it absolutely does. I absolutely like I said. I think that I've hit that point now, where I'm almost at my 18 months in recovery from self-harm and and uh, cocaine. I actually haven't used anything else. I haven't um, last time I touched marijuana was in 2007. Uh, the last time I touched. Cocaine was in 2018, summer 2018. Last time I self-harmed was in 2018. So I definitely do think I'm at that point now. I'm kind of, if nothing else, I'm a streak person. Like it's like, well, now I've, I've had this many days of streak and I don't want to lose it. Like I I started learning French on Duolingo and I'm at something like a 1,164 day streak because I just absolutely cannot let it go at this point. Like it's a very extrinsic thing, but I can't let that streak go. I'm like, I can't lose it. I just can't lose it. I have to keep my streak. I have to keep my streak. So if nothing else, I feel like I'm at that point where well, it'll be kind of silly now to relapse, wouldn't it? And it feels the same. I, I had smoked cigarettes for quite some time too, and I haven't smoked in a long time. And now I don't even think about it. Like sometimes I will have cravings uh, for cocaine. That's the one that I do struggle with every now and then if I'm really tired or I'm in a really bad place mentally, I will get up and kind of have cravings and have to work through that. But I can't see myself in any other way now. Like I can't see myself being that person again. I can't see myself having these addictions. I can't see myself, you know, being in that mindset. I can't see myself. I can't see myself as, as having those symptoms anymore. Like I, I definitely know that I'll go through hard times and I definitely know at some point I'll, I'll have symptoms of, of depression temporarily, but I can't see myself being that person that has that constant darkness. I can't see myself being that dark, uh, gloomy person that just sees no way out because now I know better. Now I know there is a way out. Now I know that there is another side to it. And that's powerful because when you're in that darkness, you don't know that you don't see that you don't feel that you are in like this. I, I describe it to all the Harry Potter geeks as imagine that you're just trapped in a room full of dementors that are just sucking all the happy out of you. And you feel like you're never going to be happy again. And there's nothing beyond that room. And that's just all, you know, so I literally felt like I was in my own personal Azkaban. I felt like I was in my own personal hell, just having all the happiness sucked out of me all the time. And yeah, I can't imagine ever being that way again. And I've said multiple times that 
aside from my son, there is nobody on this planet that I will let take me to that place again. Like, it does not matter if I have to drop my best friend, if I have to drop, you know, anybody in my life, be it a partner or a friend or whatever, I will never go back to that place again, no matter what, nothing. Nope. I, I worked too damn hard to get here. It took way too much to get here for me to revert. And I think I fe- it, it's poetic because we're always taught that happily ever after is finding your prince and riding off in the sunset and living blah, 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 blah. Yeah, well, you know what the first thing uh, Cinderella really did when Prince Charming was dropped off the castle? Probably had a massive anxiety attack and down to all the Xanax because there is no perfect existence with a partner or without. And we think that we're waiting for this person to save us, be it a romantic interest or Chester or you know a family member or somebody. We're always waiting to be saved And I saved myself and I was my own happily ever after. I was my own, you know, knight in shining armor or princess in shining armor, however you want to look at it. And that, I I just never thought that that would be how I would find my happily ever after. Sense. When are you in your flow? Where, where's your, where are we going to see in your best flow state? My best flow state. Well, I'm definitely on the. I'm, I'm definitely in this this river that's constantly just going woo like in a million different directions. Um, I have been doing a lot of um, a lot of articles and stuff for health magazines. I did Oxygen magazine. I've done Women's Health magazine. So keep an eye out for me in all of those places. If you sign up to my mailing list, um, everybody always gets notified when I do those. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited. I'm most excited about the book. I'm most excited about the book coming out next year and being able to share my story in such a raw way with people. I'm also doing a five-day challenge where people can learn uh, the five puzzle pieces of happiness without having to go through the whole program. Because right now, I don't want people to have excuses to not be able to take control, to take their power back. I don't want people to be able to continue saying, oh, I can't afford this and I can't do that and I don't have the time. So I wanted to do this five day challenge for people to learn that, that five pieces of, of happiness uh, framework. So that way they can boost their own DAS scales in those five days. So even if you're a hot mess, even if you're struggling with symptoms of anxiety, depression, even if you're going, my God, I need 2020 to be over right now, please like end me, end it on a good note. Um, you will learn all five of those puzzle pieces. You'll learn how to implement things right away so that you can improve your DASC skills. And you also get a free gift. Um, all attendees get a free copy of my workbook, How to Improve Your Focus and Boost Your Happiness. So you can go to um, happinessboost.life to sign up for that challenge so that you can learn whether you know, you're know you struggling or you're just kind of needing a little boost, you can learn the, the five puzzle pieces that will help you achieve optimal mental and physical health. Wow, that's awesome. Tell me if you were to summarize your fire in the belly then in one or two words, what would it be? My what in the body? Your, your fire in the belly in one Oh, my or fire two. in the belly. I, I really think it's, it's the desire to prove people wrong. It's the desire to show people what they're capable of. Because if people can see where I was and see what I'm capable of, and I don't have anything special, then they have to know what they're capable of. So just really showing people how to prove the world wrong. And what's the one thing you'd like, you wish everyone could know? That the whole saying, it gets better. 
I, I definitely am a proponent of that. I did a, an It Gets Better video um, for the It Gets Better project because I want people to know that there is hope, but it gets better when you make it better. It gets better when you take your power back, when you look and analyze yourself and what you can do and stop giving up your power to everyone else. Stop letting the bullies or in my case, my rapist, stop letting all these awful people or well-meaning good people dictate who you are and how you live your life. Take your power back and make it better. Make your life better <laughs> because I promise you, no matter where you're at right now, no matter how hopeless you're feeling, it, it can get better when you make it better. Well, very, very powerful. Thank you. Do you know, have you had a date for the book yet? Or are you just waiting to see? I don't. It'll be in 2021, but I don't have an exact date yet. Cool. Well, let us know. Let us know. Amanda, it's been awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. And um, yeah, listen, what a story. And I look forward to seeing the book next year. So do let us know. So uh, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without a great guest taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you.